Upon marking song number 189, I hope that you still have your Bible open to that passage in 1 John 2, verses 179. 179, Brother Eddie asked us to mark 179 for a song of encouragement. That passage in 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17 is the one that was just read in our hearing a moment ago. As Mike read that in our hearing, I hope that it brought to mind several things, and they will be the subject of at least a fair amount of the lesson this morning. Good to see each one out today, and I trust that as we now have come to a part of considering at least a section of the Word of God, we're going to discuss today an issue, a matter that every one of us face. Now, I know that as you give thought to what might that possibly be, after all, we're each individuals and we have our own unique health circumstances and our own unique histories and perspectives. But there's something that's common to all of us. From the biblical standpoint, certainly many things might fall in that category. But we're going to look at one in some detail today with the hope that we each might be encouraged and that we might, in fact, be better equipped to deal with it. You can probably already guess what it is based on the title, but we're going to give some thought to temptation. Temptation. The opening slide, the introductory one that's now before you, will remind you of the great truth that I just invited you to consider. May I, in fact, in fact turn your attention briefly to a text in James chapter 1 wherein the subject of temptation is addressed in these words, "...let no man say when he is tempted." I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man. But listen, every man is tempted. None of us are exempt. None of us are excused. None of us in some way do not face it. Every man is tempted when he, when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. May I again say, we all face this. Wouldn't it be to our benefit to know what the Word of God has to say about it so that we can not only be better equipped to observe it when it's there, but we might be able to overcome it, to sidestep it, to defeat it. And so that's the idea of our study today. As you and I close that slide, may I say that the very same chapter from which we just noted, James 1.13 the verse preceding that might be one that we easily might pass by, but may I draw it to our attention and use it as an additional motivation. Blessed is the man who endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Now you'll notice there's a blessing pronounced upon those who endure. Those who face temptation and yet do not succumb to it. Those who face it and yet overwhelm it. You and I all want to be in that category, surely. Let's then discuss today, what are some avenues, what are some channels that the devil uses in terms of these temptations? And as we study that, we'll be better equipped, without doubt, to be solidly able to defeat it. This next slide is a, is, is a general one that I thought to put together to try to identify what is temptation. How would we define it? What might be some features, some descriptions that would be related to it? Well, first of all, the idea of the word tempt, which is the root word to the word temptation, it literally means to put to a trial or to put to a test. 
May I point out that there are some times in the Bible when we see that word tempt used in a way that we ought not allow it to confuse us. For example, in Genesis 22, the text says, God tempted Abraham. <laughs> but we just now read a minute ago, God doesn't tempt any man. Is this a contradiction? It is not. There's a latitude that might be employed with the direction concerning the usage of the word tempt. You and I know that we're discussing today temptation under the banner of being enticed to do what's wrong or to be enticed not to do what's right. That's what the devil does. He places before us those allurements, those enticements, if you will, whereby if we fall to it, we will do what is not right. Now, when it says God tempted Abraham, it just means he tested his faith. We're not discussing that as a part of today's sermon. That might be for a different place and time. But it's interesting as you and I discuss these temptations. You'll notice at the top of that slide, we've already read it, but God in His great perfection cannot be tempted. He's above it. He is so perfectly good, so perfectly true, so perfectly pure. He is above temptation. But that's not true of you and me. We are not on that level with Him, and therefore we are subject to temptation. And we are subject to thus being drawn aside to do what we ought not do or to fail to do what we should do. That kind of temptation takes you to that next idea. Who's the one behind this temptation? We've learned it isn't God. Is it not the devil? In fact, maybe a key idea and a key verse that will suggest that to us. Look with me at the opening verse of Matthew 4. You, you and I recall the Lord had just been baptized, and yet the text says He was taken into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And in the next verses that follow are a description of those temptations that the devil brought before the Master. But you notice the devil's the one that did it. When you and I are tempted today, we ought not merely think, well, it's my own weakness. It may be the devil's using your weakness and mine to accomplish a goal, but ultimately the one behind these temptations is the devil. He's the one with an, uh, with an objective. He's the one with an incentive. He's the one with a motivation to cause you and I to fall. He does not want us to be close to God. He does not want our faith to be mighty. He does not want us to go to heaven. He wants us to go where He's going. We already know from Matthew 25, verses 41 and following, there's a place prepared for the devil and his angels, and it's not heaven. It's that place called Gehenna. It's that place called hell. He knows he's going there, and in spite to God, he wants us to go there too. Temptation is thus a strong element presented to us in the Word of God. With that said, look about the middle of that slide. If you and I were then called upon to develop an additional thought concerning that verse we read earlier, these temptations involve our lusts. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. What are these lusts? The actual Greek word has the idea you can see on that slide. Passions, desires, those features of the human frame 
in many cases, by themselves, they are not wrong. But they can be satisfied in a way that is wrong. They can be approached in a way that is not right. The devil can excite those passions, those desires within us, and it's his goal to drive our pursuit of them in a way that's not consistent with the Word of God. For that reason, you may notice that about the middle of that slide, this word lust, in its noun form, it has the idea of to be drawn away. Allurements. Things that capture our attention in one way or another. We're going to talk about those in quite a bit of detail today. What might they be? How does the devil use these? It's really a fascinating consideration. And so it is at the bottom of that slide. When lust conceives, when it germinates, when it brings forth that which is next in line, the text says that is sin. You and I know that sin is a violation of the law of God. That temptation is then an important cog, an important movement on the way to sin. Therefore, we need to be mindful of these temptations, aware of them, understanding of what they are and the means to overwhelm them. To close that slide, the Word of God highlights then that temptation is real. I know the human family in our present day is one that so often reflects upon each person with the opportunity to choose what each would wish to do. Didn't the Bible say there's a way that seemeth right to a man? You know, there are things that seem right. They perhaps satisfy us in a way that makes us pleasurable. But the fact is, they're not right. They may well lead into a place and into an end which is quite, quite, quite bad. The next slide then takes us to this direction. These avenues of temptation, we've already mentioned some of these features, and again, Brother Mike read it earlier. Let's revisit that passage in 1 John 2 and listen with some care to what John wrote in the long ago. When by inspiration, the Apostle John penned these words, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. I believe we can each be impressed and rather fascinated by the thought that all of those lusts, Every possible temptation that you and I could ever face will occur in one of three categories or some combination of them. That's it. There are no more. And if we are thus aware of those categories, mindful of that which is involved in them, we will be better equipped to not only be aware of the temptation, but of the way in which it could be defeated. So what are these avenues, or what are these channels, if you please? I would invite you to note again the wording of verses 15 and 16. It says, All that is in the world, 
Now, we've just been told, do not love the world. I suppose that's one of the constant challenges facing those that would love the Lord. This world, of course, can present its niceties, and it can present its pleasant things. And we're often in prayer, thankful to God for the beauty of His creation and so many of the attributes and aspects of it. There's an appropriateness to that kind of thinking. But there's a fine line that mustn't be crossed. To reach the point where we love this place, we love what it offers. We are genuinely thrilled by it to the point that our passion is there. Once we've reached that point, 1 John 2.15 loudly shouts, we've reached a place that is not good. Do not love the world. That kind of statement of verse 15 then says, nor the things that are in it. We in our country are blessed above all other countries upon earth, materialistically advanced. We have so much. There again lies a bit of a problem, or at least a challenge, may I say, a point of temptation that we will develop at some extent in just a moment. But in this very text wherein he has just said, do not love the world, look at how he develops it in verse 16. For all that's in the world. John, I'm not supposed to love it. And John says, let me tell you what's in it. So you'll know what to be on the lookout for. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And there we have it. Everything in the world that which stands opposed to God and may be developed by passion within you and me, everything that is highlighted in a way that's opposed to the will and truth and development of the God of heaven will fall into one of these categories or again some combination of them. The lust of the flesh. Let's discuss that one first since it's the first one mentioned. You'll notice on that slide about, oh, the middle part of it, we have this phrase, lust of the flesh. That word flesh comes from the Greek word sarx, S-A-R-X. And on that slide, I've invited your attention to think about some of the elements that go along with it. First of all, this is a reference to ultimately what will have relation to the body of man. In some way, flesh will have connotation to it. Some passion excited in connection to the flesh of man. Some attribute that has to do with the actual flesh or body of man. And obviously, that list would seemingly include many things. But on that slide, may I ask you to note this. There are some passions, some temptations, which have zeroed in on a pursuit to the flesh of man. It excites some element of what it is like to be human, to be basically related to, the, to, to that which is our body. You probably can think of many sins that ultimately have a connection directly to that. Now on that slide, I've asked you to think about two other occurrences in the Bible where we have a direct example of this. Don't you love examples where you can see case in point of how this works? You may want to turn back to Genesis chapter 3. In the very first temptation that ever took place, you and I notice this development is highlighted. You recall the scene well, Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. 
as they were in that garden, we find in Genesis 3, verse number 6, an interesting presentation. Now, the earlier command that God had given was simply this. You may eat of every tree in the garden except one. The tree in the midst of the garden, that tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. You must not eat of it. For in the day you do, you'll surely die. Genesis 2, verses 15 to 17. However, in the very next chapter, what took place? Verse 1, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. A serpent? You and I know that the devil was occupying the form of this creature, and this serpent speaks to Eve. In verses 2 and following, you notice that she carried on a conversation with the serpent, basically with the devil in the form of that serpent. In so doing, you may recall that she made a dramatic observation. We may not eat of, the gar- of that fruit, of that tree. In fact, we cannot even touch it. But then the serpent said this in verse 4, Ye shall not surely die. He took the words of God, added one word to it. Now, you and I recognize one must never add or subtract from the Word of God, but of course the devil did it here. Look at what then happened in verse number 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she saw something. She had recognition of the fact that the fruit on that tree was no doubt luscious, It was no doubt excitingly fulfilling to the taste. Now, she would never have known that, but she perceived it was good for food. Here is a temptation of the lust of the flesh. Satisfying to the body, adequate and far beyond that in regard to something desirable to the flesh. It would taste good. She saw that. She recognized. She perceived this. Now, that particular example in which we see the devil using the lust of the flesh, that only begs for yet another example taken from Matthew chapter 4. You and I recall earlier that Jesus, on that occasion, shortly after His baptism, He was led into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. The first temptation was this, turn these stones into bread, lust of the flesh. Jesus, you're hungry. Do something about it. Satisfy that passion that you have to fulfill the satisfaction of that hunger. Turn these rocks into bread. The Lord wouldn't do it. Eve did take of the fruit, but Jesus would not turn the stones to bread. But isn't it true we see an example of lust of the flesh, something that satisfies those propensities of our body, May I suggest we need to be cautious. What are those passions of the body? As we said earlier, many times by themselves they aren't wrong, but they can be pursued in a way that is. For instance, it isn't wrong to eat, but the Lord wouldn't turn rocks to bread. Why not? Because at that time there was something about satisfying the provision of the flesh that would have elevated it above the service to God. And that would be wrong. Today, there are things about you and I 
the body has its passions and desires, but when they're elevated above the service to God, they've become wrong if we pursue them. That means when we give thought to the services of the church or when we give thought to the other elements of our service to God, whatever that may be, if we allow our fleshly propensities to rise in elevation above that service, we've gone to a place not good. The lust of the flesh. You'll notice about the bottom of that slide. There are things then about our bodies and those desires in us. We have to be cautious thinking, careful, and rather mindful of what could happen. Now, this lust of the flesh is only one that perhaps begs our attention to the second one. And as you give thought to that second one, it is interesting to observe that it's described as the lust of the eyes. That lust of the eyes, you'll notice an interesting Greek word, and I put it in parentheses, Ophthalmos. You probably can easily see reference to our modern day ophthalmology. That's, that's where the word comes from. Those with ophthalmology expertise, well, they're able to know about the head and specifically the behavior of the eyes. Well, notice here, there's an affliction called lust of the eyes. Let's discuss that for just a moment. We've given highlight to, to the body. What about this one? The word literally has reference to the eye. Something that one sees. Something that one perceives. Something that one observes, you see. Well, with that thought in mind, look again at the developments. There are some temptations which the devil doesn't really appeal to the body at large. It's to something you see. I'd like that. I'd love to have that. Maybe it has nothing to do, you see, with the body, but maybe it's some element you'd like to use, something you'd like to own, something you and I'd like to have. We see it. And maybe it would even develop within us a sense of envy. Isn't it true? Some sins are developed from lusts, which don't have anything to do, per se, with the body. It's just something you'd like, something you'd want. Well, that relates rather strongly to this lust of the eyes. And so, as we talk about that for just a few minutes, look again at some examples in the Bible. Aren't you again delighted to know the Bible has given us some examples of this? Turn back to Genesis 3 again. The wording is rather explicit. In Genesis chapter 3, verse number 6, the same verse we noted earlier, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes. There we have it. Not only was that fruit on, on that tree, we do not know exactly what the fruit was on that tree of knowledge of good and evil, but this much we know, it must have looked absolutely amazing. I'm sure it was near the prettiest fruit in the whole garden. If it weren't, it wouldn't have been that tempting. I'm sure that it was exciting in many ways to ponder just how spectacular it looked. Enough to make Eve want to take it. There are things in your life and mine that look absolutely fantastic. A lot of times it's not nearly as good once you get it. But it sure looked good at, at first, didn't it? 
Maybe you've known of individuals. Maybe you and I have fallen into that trap a time or two. Something that looked far better than what it turned out to be. But in that look, in that appearance, in that observation, it was something exciting enough that we were willing to pursue it. And that lust led to some sin. The lust of the eyes. Sometimes in our vacation Bible schools, we encourage our youngsters, be careful little eyes what you see. Well, there's, there's good reason for, for that word of wisdom, isn't there? This kind of consideration reminds us, Eve, you know, she succumbed to what she saw. May I ask that you consider Jesus again? There's an example of it there in Matthew chapter 4. You remember the scene. That tempter came and the Lord heard him say this, Turn these stones to bread. We've already talked about that one. But one of the next temptations was, you may recall he took the master to a place and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Notice, he showed him something. The Lord perceived, he saw, he observed something. What did he see? Every kingdom and all the majesty and power that went with it and said, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give it to you. The Lord wouldn't do it. Despite what he had just seen, despite what he observed, he wouldn't do it. May I again say, that's another example of the lust of the eyes. What the Lord saw. And yet, in what He saw, that was not enough to drive a wedge between Him and faithfulness to God. May you and I have that degree of wisdom. Regardless what we see, how appealing, how enticing, perhaps how spectacular and majestic it may appear, there's often a very hidden truth behind it. Quite often, it never is what it seems. Isn't it interesting to, to note Moses' situation in Hebrews eleven twenty five? You'll notice there that he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. You see, sin he knew would bring pleasure for a while, for a season, for a protracted time. And yet... Beyond it comes the reality that is not quite nearly as pleasant. But isn't it true the lust of the eyes can be so moving, and the devil knows it. It has been estimated that roughly 90% of the information you and I take into our body is through the eye. It's what we see. Now, it's true we hear a lot and we taste other things and we touch other things, but the vast majority of the information that you and I take in comes by virtue of what we see. It's no wonder then the devil is a master at corrupting what we see and twisting it to the point where it leads us to perceive what is not the truth about it. And therefore, we succumb to it, and the lust of the eyes will ultimately lead to our downfall in terms of a sin. The lust of the eyes, how careful then must we be in terms of recognizing the power of this lust of the eyes. Near the bottom of that slide, then, you'll notice, surely many sins easily fall into this category, and we've already noted some of them. Things like jealousy, things like envy, things like covetousness. I want that, and I'm willing to go to any extent to get it. Even if it means trampling over the wisdom of others, even if it means driving a wedge between myself and the Father, I'm going to have it.
Oh, how the Bible described many of those in that category to us. And in many cases, how sad was their end. How pitiful was their end. You and I might find ourselves in that same spot. So far, we've looked at the lust of the flesh and at the lust of the eyes. But you and I well know that the third one is yet to come. The pride of life. You'll notice that's the third one that John, by inspiration, listed. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Let's take a few moments and discuss that one as well. Maybe allowing ourselves to be mindful of its place in the Bible and also the kind of danger that it presents as well. That word pride, as it occurs there, is the translation of the word that means vainglory. False pride, conceit, and boasting. We can think of it in relation to arrogance. Isn't it true that some passions and some lusts directly excite that part of you and me? We love to have the preeminence. We like to have the name that's recognized so that others will turn to us. And often we might be willing to go to extreme to put ourselves in that position. We might be willing to lie. For that, we might be willing to proceed in falsehood for that. This element of vainglory, this element of conceit or boasting, reminds us again of biblical examples. Twice before we've looked at Genesis 3 verse 6, how about we do it a third time? Aren't you still amazed at the very first recorded temptation used all three elements, and this is now what we see. Not only did Eve see the tree was pleasant to the eyes, not only did she see the fruit was, according to verse number 6, good for food. Look at what else she perceived. And a tree to be desired to make one wise. You see, the devil had told her, don't you know that if you partake of that, God knows that it will make you like Him. It will make you like God's knowing good and evil. And thus she made conclusion, it's pretty to look at, it's good for food, and I will get to be wise in the process. There was an element, you see, of the pride of life even in the initial temptation that the devil brought upon Eve. Now that particular example reminding us about the avenues that the devil used. Let's turn ourselves to the consideration of Jesus again. What about Matthew 4? Notice there was one of the temptations I haven't yet discussed. Turn these stones to bread, lust of the flesh. I'll show you all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and I'll give them to you if you worship me, lust of the eyes. The third one was this. He took the master to the pinnacle of the temple and said, Throw yourself down. The Scripture says that the God of heaven will not suffer you to be... will not suffer your foot to be, to be injured, being dashed against a stone. But you'll notice he preceded that by saying, if you are the Son of God, prove it to me. If you are the Son of God, demonstrate it to me. How often have you and I fallen for something similar? Prove it to me. Illustrate to me by your demonstration that you are what you say you are and that you can do it. 
How easy would it have been for Jesus in fury to say, I am who I say I am, and I am who the Scriptures affirm, and I'll show you by doing this. And if He had, He would have sinned. Today, isn't it true that you and I can fall into this trap? You see, we don't like to be insulted or to feel as if we are lower than what we truly are, for the most part. We don't like to feel humiliation. We don't like to feel abasement, for the most part. And yet the devil used that in terms of Eve. He tried to use it in terms of Jesus, but he failed then. But how often does he turn to the pride of life? You surely don't want to be humiliated or insulted. And so you behave in this way. You conduct yourself this way. And in so doing, you'll maintain your prideful integrity in life. And all the while, that conceited vainglory, that behavior that follows from it, is, you see, something that John has already described. The pride of life is not of the Father. It is of the world, and it will pass away. It's not good. You'll notice on that slide that I've invited you to think that the challenges we've seen so far today in terms of these avenues of sin take us right back to the passage that I would, that I would invite you to listen as I read it again. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. This lust of the flesh, this lust of the eyes, this pride of life is directly contrasted to the will of God. Because it says, they will perish, but the will of God will persist. It will endure if you and I wish to be right with God, surely we would have strong desire and appreciation to not only be aware of these temptations, but to seek to overwhelm them. And so let's close our lesson with a few words of advice from the Word of God. And aren't we thankful for this? You know, if a person were to give us advice, that might be worthy of some consideration. But if it's the Word of God giving this... Oh, how worthwhile it is for our thinking, for our pursuit, and for our mastery. And so as we appreciate these avenues of temptation, I hope today we can close with this thought. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able but also with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Paul, by inspiration, wrote to the brethren at Corinth and reminded them of this truth. The temptations you face may be strong. There's no doubt about that. They may be very intense. There's no doubt about that. But each and every time, there is a way of escape. There's an avenue whereby you can be removed from that temptation and not succumb to it. May you and I look for the way of escape. May we be reminded that it does exist. And so, when the lust of the eyes is so strong, may we look some other direction. 
when the lust of the flesh seems so intense, may we find a way to diminish that intensity by moving to a different place, pursuing a different course, finding ourselves in a different allotment. When that pride of life seems so strong, it's time perhaps then above all others to think about the need for humility, the need for self-abasement, the need for self-control. No wonder the Bible then would give us so many additional words of wisdom. Words like these, and notice how strong the Word of God can be to help us overcome temptation. Jesus quoted it three times, and every time He was successful. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Do you and I want to know how to keep sin at bay? Store this word in your heart. Store this word in your heart. Have it ready at a moment's notice to rely upon it, to follow pursuit with it. The Word of God in that way, oh, what a weapon it is. Is it not described as the sword of the Spirit? It can ward off any enemy when properly utilized. Today, as you and I close this lesson, we come to this conclusion page. We've studied the basics of temptation and found three avenues the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And we've seen examples both in the life of Christ and even in the scene concerning Adam and Eve. And we've found that the devil used those temptations, in Eve's case, to great advantage. He will use them to great advantage today. May you and I in wisdom recognize his exploits, to see behind the matter he's using, and to defuse it with the Word of God just like the Master did. It may be in this assembly today that there's someone who perhaps has allowed temptation to lead you into lust, and of course that lust into sin. Realize the course you've taken is not one that others should look down on you for. You just made a poor decision. But Jesus is waiting so lovingly to welcome you back home. If your sins have been those that have known in a public way, and maybe you brought disgrace upon yourself, upon the Lord's church, upon that which the Lord stands for, you can be forgiven of that. And you could seek His strength and not make those mistakes again. We today would love nothing more than to encourage you in that way. And the Word of God says, if you'll repent of those things and confess them, He will forgive them. And isn't that great? It could be, though, someone has never become a Christian. Don't you want the power and strength of the Lord at your side throughout life to aid you to see those fiery darts of the wicked one? Today, if you wish to become a Christian, believe on Him, won't you? Repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized, and we'd be honored to assist and help. This song of encouragement has been chosen, and if we could be of assistance to anyone, won't you come while we stand and while we sing?